Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 5, The Kings, the human ones. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, brace yourself for a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. Another reason that David doesn't need Saul's armor and sword is that once Goliath has been dropped, his sword is mighty handy. It's freshly sharpened and even still polished all shiny and bright since it's gone unused by its owner. Goliath's skull is so thick, the stones just knocked him out for a bit, so David pulls the giant's own sword and finishes the job, beheading his fearsome foe to top things off. And the Philistines flee. The armies of Israel are roused from their faithless stupor by young David's victory, and they take off after the enemy, pursuing them all the way to the Philistines' nearest fortified city. Meanwhile, David, with the trophy of the giant's head in hand, is brought before Saul, who finally asks him who he is. Whose son are you, young man? This clinches the fact that we've given you parallel accounts of David's big entrance, again after his anointing, of course. We already unpacked the other one, the court musician who's so endearing, Saul asks David's father to allow the boy to remain in full service to him. And you can't ask somebody a question like that unless you know who they are. So that's that. And so what? Well, the military side of David's role in the Abra plan is going to be mighty important too, and the keenness of his young faith is even more important than his keen aim here, as he trusts me to triumph through him over Goliath. We've already mentioned the contrasts that mount up as we've gone along, Contrasts that point to David's ability to see the situation through the eyes of faith, as opposed to virtually everyone else in the valley, regardless of whose side they're on, seeing the situation as if I do not exist. Clearly, the man who is going to act as my anointed agent in moving my people forward toward the rescue of all humanity is going to have to have David's sight not Saul's. And so a powerful moment of transition hits in 1 Samuel 18, as David is welcomed into Saul's closest circle and is made a primary leader of Israel's armies in spite of his youth. Jonathan, Saul's son, immediately pledges his loyalty, love, and sword to David. As a symbol of this covenant, Jonathan also gives his robe to David and these actions cannot be underestimated in their importance. In most habitats that have ever had kings and or queens, the crown gets passed to the oldest child of the reigning monarch. In this instance, Jonathan would be next in line. Surrendering his robe to David is an act that symbolizes Jonathan's transfer of his right and expectation of the throne of Israel to his new best friend. There is sure to be drama ahead in the transfer of kingship, 
and the fact that the first scene after this decisive battle has Jonathan removing himself from that drama paves the way for a much easier shift to David when the day comes. It's going to be difficult enough as it is. That day comes pretty quickly. As the new commander of Israel's armies, and even more importantly as my anointed, David has success wherever Saul sends him, at the Philistines still at this point and for a while to come. Which is fine with Saul, until the women of Israel celebrate David's post-victory homecoming with a little song that goes, Saul has slain, slain his thousands, David slain, he slain his tens, his tens of thousands. Yep, this new fellow is ten times better than the king. People know it. Now, another facet to that liar-playing intro to David section is that it introduces the theme of Saul's instability. There, the king has a troubled soul that can only be soothed by sweet music. Imagine, then, how much he enjoys the musical number the women are singing in the streets as David comes home, the song that counts David's worth as ten Saul's. Before we go on, there's a lick in the owner's manual here that actually echoes something that occurred several episodes ago as well, but I saved it for exploration here. If you get out your manual and check out 1 Samuel 18.10, you'll find an indication that I have sent an evil spirit and put it on Saul. I'll both grant and agree that this sounds particularly heinous for me to be doing to the fellow, and once again, we're going to appeal to the issue of habitat and the frames of reference that are at play when you read these verses in order to make sense of it all. Again, your habitat is a good three millennia after these events take place. Three thousand years. I've gotten the human race to a slightly more sophisticated place theologically by now, not that there isn't a commensurate lack of sophistication flying around, too. At the instant point in the Abra plan concerning Saul, though, I am still working with humanity where it is in that time, and we've come a long way, to be certain. But remember the habitat there, friend, the polytheistic habitat where Yahweh is, I am just another god on the menu. We're on the way with humanity to the place where they and you understand that I am the one and only God on the menu, and there actually is no menu, but we are very much not there yet. Here's why I mention polytheism right now. Now, stay with me here. Back at the start of Joshua, when he met the commander of my hosts of armies, we surveyed my creation of beings in the spiritual realms that are pre- and non-human, the angels. We even cataloged some flavors of angel together. That was me bringing together the cues and clues throughout the whole of Tom for you at that point to give you the larger perspective of things. At this point in our narrative, though, where David and Saul are intersecting in the Abra plan, practically none of those cards have been shown yet. 
It's far too early at this point to introduce the idea of very strong, eternal, spiritual beings to humanity, because they'd instantly be seen in the habitat of the time as gods, which they are so not. So, for the time being, I have to be the source of all things spiritual, be they good or bad, until we can get the menu off the menu for good. It's also too early in our time together with you to really unpack this whole concept. As you can imagine, it's extremely important, and I promise to revisit this whole theme when the time is right for you. For now, I just needed to have this little excursion for the five of you who are actually following along in your Bible and reading everything in there. Regardless of whether the spirit that's harassing Saul is from the dark side, it is, Saul doesn't need it to tell him that I am no longer with him or that my hand is upon David instead. It's a tough situation for Saul, who is both jealous of David and in awe of him. So for Saul, one of the handy things about having David lead the army is that it gets David out of Saul's presence and into battle, where the usurping upstart shepherd boy just might get himself killed. It's a risk inherent to battle, and should the worst happen, Saul wouldn't technically have had anything to do with it. Now, we didn't mention this next bit earlier because we were concentrating on other themes. But at the time of Goliath's challenge to Israel, Saul promised that whatever Hebrew warrior went forth to answer and fight Goliath would, as part of his reward, get to marry one of Saul's daughters. Handily, Saul's daughter Michal is smitten with David, so Saul gives her to David as wife instead of his eldest daughter, which have been the more proper thing to do habitatually. Saul's hoping Michal's passion for David will so drain her husband that he'll be no match for the Philistines. Before even getting to that, though, Saul says the price for her hand is going to be a hundred dead Philistines. You see, a Philistine won't let you cut his foreskin off unless he's dead. And given that this particularly sensitive fold of flesh has become the marker of a man's belonging to me or not, Saul thinks he's pretty clever in asking for the gross dowry of a hundred foreskins from their most powerful enemy, yet another chance for Dave to get himself skewered and out of Saul's hair. David comes back with two hundred, just to make sure, counting the full number out for Saul in 1 Samuel 18.27. The king somehow thinks that, even though I am clearly with David, if Saul keeps pecking away at his rival with death opportunities here and there, one of them is bound to work. Saul is clearly not seeing how much my being part of the picture is such a game-changer. Surely, you can see that by now. Keep walking with me, on the way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. Then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. 
You can find a link to our Patreon page there as well. We're sponsored by the Oak Haven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website graphics, kennyeicherart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.